Welcome to the Worship Theology Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeremy Perigo, and in this podcast, I bring in guest theologians, scholars, musicians, Christian leaders, and together we attempt to bridge faith and ministry praxis. Worship Theology is a podcast to fuel and nurture vital discussions on worship, music, and theology. So we're so glad that you've joined us as we think deeply about Christian worship. I'm so glad to welcome today to this podcast Dr. Lester Ruth, who is a research professor at Christian Worship at Duke University. His current focus is on contemporary praise and worship, and he's super passionate about enriching the worshiping life of current congregations across the globe. Lester, I, I just want to get to get to know you, folks that aren't aren't really familiar with you. And to do that, sometimes we ask some of our guests to to share a memorable moment in corporate worship. You think about your life of being in, yeah, lots of different worshiping contexts. When you think of corporate worship and a, a memory in your own life, what what's one that comes to mind? Oh, um, just one? Can I share <laughs> three or four short ones? I chewed on this question last night, so let me it. share them quickly. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, um, I'm a visitor to lots of worship spaces, and I don't mean that literally. Um, I am just intrigued by how Christian people across space and time have worshipped God. So my memories are a little eclectic. One was um, a Monday Thursday foot washing service um, in the late 80s and there was a retired Methodist bishop right in front of me the line and I can remember this old man kind of getting down on creaky knees and washing the feet of this um, young seminary student and the juxtaposition of power bending down in humility in worship that kind of that flipping of the world's values in worship has always struck me um uh, a similar one uh, about the same time a year or two apart i was in a methodist church in mexico uh cement block um cement floor basic wood benches and they had in spanish and if anybody's listening who's a spanish speaker please excuse I'm going to butcher the language. <laughs> they had on the front wall uh, a short passage from the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, un, uno mayor que el templo está aquí. One greater than the temple is here. And I was just, I was just struck, in, in the, uh, struck by the simplicity of the worship, how true that was, that wherever you have the presence of Christ, it is the most glorious of spaces, even if you don't have all the uh, technology and the, yeah. the highfalutin stuff. Um, <laughs> and then another one, if I could share one last yeah, one. please. I, I was in a funeral hmm. once, and they decided to use as an affirmation of faith uh, the old hymn, I'll praise my maker while I've breath, and when my voice is lost in death, praise shall employ my nobler powers and and i just thought about the boldness of christians proclaiming that just uh, the the centrality of the praise of god for our eternal being and purpose um, well, and what even as there was a casket laying in front yeah, of us yeah and i i can particularly think how that with within the context of a funeral like that the, the meaning of that hymn becomes more 
personal and more more relevant. It's almost a, a challenge to praise, a challenge to worship as you have have breath. It's beautiful. You know, so lest people think, um, you know, there's no common theme in all of this. The common theme is um, a deep appreciation and study which is what I do academically, of how Christian people across time uh, have worshipped God. And I, I'm struck and um, fascinated by the variety yeah. um, of that. Well, spe- speaking of time, let's push that even bigger. When I've, I think I've heard you share, again, you do a lot with the history of, of worship, but I can remember one of the first lectures I heard you give was on kind of your theology of worship or your liturgical theology. And you're you're going beyond time. You're going to, or at least to the entire cosmos. And I think sure. I I think the lecture was titled "Cosmic Child's Play for Real." And I yeah. think you you were unpacking your kind of theology of worship. And can you share a little bit about that theology and what what cosmic child's play for real means? Um, sure. It's actually my take on a theological principle I learned from the New Testament 40 years ago, which is uh, the coming kingdom of God is both already and not yet. So there's a basic tension that we live in. Um, and, and unless you have an over-realized eschatology, like the folks in uh, Thessalonica, uh, go, read, go read First and Second Thessalonians, uh, you have to acknowledge that we've got this basic tension. We're walking in the power of the resurrection, but our own bodies have not been fully glorified yet. So it is and it isn't. And so cosmic child's play, I think, is my theology of, of the mind frame that you have to get into when you're going into worship, um, Christian worship, to realize the fullness of what's actually there even if it's not readily apparent um i i think it deals with the one of the basic sort of um mysteries of the christian faith this side of the second coming of jesus which is some things have been inaugurated other things have not but what has been inaugurated requires discernment by the eyes of the heart not the eyes of the head uh, if I can bring in one of my long dead friends, I like being a historian because so many of my friends have been dead for quite a while. You get, a, um, you get along well with them, right? I get along. They don't argue back for the most part. Um, Augustine from the 5th century, um, trying to define what a sacrament is, but I think this applies more broadly. He says, um, now these things are called sacraments because in them one thing is seen, but another is perceived. Um and by that, he's trying to say, when you look at the bread, you're going to see bread, but what you need to discern is the opportunity to participate in the body of Christ. You know, it struck me that that actually applies to the historical person of Jesus himself. Uh, and I haven't forgotten your question, Jeremy. I'm going to come <laughs> back to it, okay? So the cosmic child's play. So, um, you know, you look at Jesus and you could see a carpenter, but it was the eyes of faith that discern something deeper. And so I think it's true about Jesus. I think it's true about the church, which, you know, the New Testament says amazing things about. It's the body of Christ, the royal priesthood, et cetera, et cetera. 
And I think it's true about the main thing that the church does, which is worship. Um, and so the cosmic child's play is, um, is cosmic child's play for real. So there's a tension there. Yeah. Um, and I think what's required for us to truly appreciate everything that's taking place in this wacky thing that we call Christian worship is a playful attitude. Um, the ability to step into the future, the ability to step into a different realm. And, and I find when I'm teaching on this, um, if I ask students to think about some incident of play when they were five or six or seven, maybe eight years old, uh, where something seemed so real that they could fully immerse themselves into it, I think that's what's required of us. Um, as we gather before God and we worship him on Sunday mornings. Is some of it a, yeah, a kind of sanctified imagination or yeah. the, the, yeah, again, the role of faith of recognizing these uh, theological realities, these cosmic realities, these future realities that with our eyes we can't see, but with the eyes of faith, we know that God is active, God is present, God is moving. Yeah, I mean, well, I go into my church's sanctuary on Sunday morning, and I just look around, and I see Bill, the guy who irritates me, you know. I see I Sue. Hope Bill's, I hope Bill's not listening right yeah, now. <laughs> I, I, I'm making up these names. I see Sue, who owes me $5. You know, I see, um, I see Cindy, uh, the woman I love to have conversations with about a particular kind of book. Um, you know, so that's one level of scene. But what I really ought to be seeing is the amazement of a royal priesthood. Um, uh, and even, uh, I, I like to ask students sometimes, I like to tease them and I'll say, you know why we build, uh, often build the um, ceilings of worship spaces so high? And they'll go, I, I don't know, because hey, I never thought, I said, because we've got to make room for all the angels who show up. Um, you know, you got to pack them in, you got to pack in this angelic host. And that, I mean, you, d you make up these sort of worlds when you're six years old, but what if those sort of worlds were actually real? Um, and if we take the New Testament seriously and the witness of the apostles, it is real. I can I can remember in one of your classes years ago you were highlighting we were looking at Hagia Sophia you know the great oh sure the great first megachurch within Christendom really of in, in ancient in, Constantinople in, in Constantinople yeah. um, modern Istanbul and I think we were studying some of those realities some of those prayers about God send I I, I should have pulled out the liturgy but you know send your the the host of heaven to enter this room or you know kind of praying that God would send all these angels and you kind of highlighted the yeah the the sacramentality how the 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 shape of the building was to highlight um the holy moment when yeah the bread and wine are 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 prayed for and and then, um, yeah. yeah, kind of that, that whole experience. And then I think you had our class think, okay, so you're leading a house church. How do you, how do you bring this, this, um, yeah, imaginative reality where you, where the aesthetics aren't matching kind of this high church, high sacramental experience to a place where there's just a, 
a few, but there's still a sense of the holiness of God, the transcendence of God. And so, yeah, I think those those concepts um, of, of cosmic child's play for real is not just for churches that look like they're a part of the, the sure. great cosmos or the, the future, but even low church, free church can enter into that childlike faith um, that that is it's real. <laughs> For it's real. real. Yeah. And, and that's one of the reasons I like to study history, because I can see by looking at history, there's a long trajectory. Different groups of Christians usually want to try to sh- begin to shape the aesthetics to help that sense of discernment. Yeah. And it's a story that recurs over and over and over again. I, you know, I go into a modern megachurch now, and I see the um, fog machines and the complex concert lighting and yeah. the, and they're doing the same thing that medieval architects did or this early uh, or this late patristic yeah. architect did yeah. in building um uh hagia sophia hagia yeah. sophia thank yeah. you but studying history also allows me to see the possibilities when that's not possible um and so for early american methodists for instance who by and large were drawing from lower class people people without economic means um i mean i've been considering some of the numbers for members uh here in north carolina for instance where there were methodist circuits where um slaves outnumbered um the white people and the membership on that circuit they don't have any resources to build a really nice building but what they discovered is that um, the aesthetics of a loving fellowship was enough to create the sense of transcendence. Mm-hmm. And they, they mm-hmm. would just had wonderful ways of saying that. You know, um, our fellowship was so strong, it was as if we were in the suburbs of heaven. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that's a wonderful phrase. I mean, um, in terms of you know, what a Christian congregation is, the suburbs of heaven. <laughs> That's beautiful. Well, you, your recent projects um, have, have moved away from the study of Methodism and, and has gone into really contemporary praise and worship. What's, what's led to that kind of shift in your own, you know, your own academic inquiry, your own scholarship? What's, what got you interested in, in the history of, of contemporary praise and worship? Well, uh, part of it's a personal story and part of it's an academic story. So the personal story is that I came to faith myself in the late 70s when I went to college and uh, began singing in the campus ministry I joined um, all of the current contemporary worship songs at that time, um, being led by some close friends, uh, Bruce Marchand, Tommy Moon, uh, playing acoustic guitar. I was just flabbergasted by this and deeply moved by it. Um, so the, again, oh, no, oh, from the quality of the fellowship that we had, and the love just oozed through those people. Gosh, that sounded icky. I didn't mean it that way. But um, I, I think everybody knows I know what, what I'm talking mean. about. Um, you know, so it wasn't just a music show. It, it was actual Christian people following Christ closely and loving each other um, solidly and deeply with the music. And it was just that combination. So I've had a long-term interest in wondering, you know, where did this come from? 
you know, um, because it was not like anything I'd grown up with in my big steeple Methodist church. Uh, part of it came when I was working on my doctorate, and um, in particular, the, the most recent book it was an attempt to answer a question of a, of a book that uh, a classmate showed me um, called God's Presence Through Music, and on the back cover was the, temp, uh, the Tabernacle of Moses labeled as a praise and worship set. So you start with thanksgiving, then you move to praise, and then the Holy of Holies is where you're in, into worship. And as a historian, as a emerging historian, I was thinking, that's fascinating. Where did that come from? So I've been trying to answer that question since the mid-90s. Um, and then finally, for the last 15 years or so, this is the academic part of the question. I mean, academics are always looking for things that are understudied. Um, you know, why pull the plow through a field that's just been overworked? Um, and I and my colleague, uh, Dr. Lim, uh, Dr. Lim Sui Hong, um, just felt like um, other than the musical aspect of this history, the background story had just really not been told well. And so we were intrigued um, and interested in doing, um, telling a marvelous story about something that we didn't think what had been overworked. Yeah. There's a few things out there on kind of history of, of contemporary worship, and you even make mention this in your book. There's some cultural readings, there's histories yeah. of the music industry, um, histories, you know, looking at development of specific songs, um, and a lot of work on, on kind of the, the theology of songs that's been out there for probably the last decade or more. You've been a part of that too, looking at yep. Trinit Trinitarian um, nomenclature and songs. There's a number of personal retellings too by worship leaders or insiders, those who are a part of that. What makes what, what you and Sui Hong did or your telling or retelling of this story a little different? Um, we've been focusing on wrestling with scripture. Um, shaping worship in response to what you hear and see the Bible telling you to do in worship. Um, and the story really had never been told that way. And we kind of stumbled on it. It's not a, at first what we thought the story was going to be. But as we got into the sources and we in, did our interviews, we ended up interviewing over 180 people. Uh, what kept coming back was the basic notion of folks opening their Bible and looking for guidance on what to do on Sunday morning. And we saw these stories and this grappling kind of clustering one of two ways. Um, with certain verses being highlighted and certain manner of interpreting the Bible being highlighted and even whether the Old Testament or the New Testament was the primary sort of text that you were grappling with. I guess sometimes contemporary worship and particularly if you look at blogs from certain denominations or even certain articles, they're known for... Um, yeah, being theologically light uh, might be a nice way of, of putting it, but what biblical theologies were central to these these this movement of, of contemporary worship? Are there certain passages of Scripture that, that, 
that contemporary leaders or pastors or theologians of those movements were were consistently drawing from? What what did you find? Yeah, and let me just um, argue against that notion that the whole movement is theologically light. Um, it's just not true. Um, so the main theological ideas or and clusters of scriptures one of them centers around the notion of God's presence or the presence of Jesus Christ in his people and so how is it that the presence of God is manifested in Christian worship and what does it mean to experience that presence and how do you facilitate it and the key verses there actually tend to be more Old Testament than New Testament uh, driven by a way of thinking that's heavily typological, meaning that there are certain kind of basic images or types that become central, um, and also driven by close word studies. So uh, the key verse in this cluster tends to be Psalm 22.3. Uh, you are the Holy One who inhabits the praises of Israel, or who is enthroned upon the praises of Israel. Um, and going back to my own college days, I actually knew this theology and I didn't realize it because one of the groups I listened to for pleasure in the late 1970s was the Imperials, uh, who didn't write worship music as much as they did kind of concert yeah. uh, music at the time. And they have a song, Praise the Lord, and guess what theology the chorus of that song articulates? You inhabit yeah. praise. Um, and thus, that's the reason for praising. Um, but, you know, it's not just that verse. Other key verses, um, uh, there are folks who look at the Tabernacle of Moses and Psalm 104 is kind of the early sort of explanation. So once we gather and once we start praising God, you know, how do we structure the whole thing? Well, you start with thanksgiving, and then you go to praise, and then you move to worship. Uh, there are other folks um, who like the Tabernacle of David and like this notion of kind of perpetual praise and worship and, and kind of the overlapping of musicians and priestly ministry. Um, and so these folks in the 60s and 70s especially were um, influential on creating the sense that uh, music is what drives praise and worship. Um, and these, as, as I'm reading your book and even reflecting, again, my tradition, Assemblies of God, growing up, Pentecostal, so much of this felt like like reliving some of my history or finding the yeah. roots and particularly this this side or this kind of stream um I, I i think i'm reminded that again on that idea of theology light like these are there's lots of reflection going on there's even rubrics of how to how to lead in a service uh, particular songs that are that are encouraged to be used so this isn't just um, one scripture, one one leader no. teaching this. This is workbooks, conferences, um, preaching, sermons, songs themselves that are that are being written to encourage this 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 approach. This kind of yeah, God is present as we sing. Yeah, and th and that's what Sui Hong and I tried to get at was the history on the evolving. Because um, literally, you can you can go from like the late. 60s to the late 70s 
and you go from a period in which there's no instructional material to the late 70s, you are starting to get a burgeoning kind of um, um, cornucopia of instructional material. And then by the late 80s, it's an industry. Yeah. Um, but you can't just look at the music or the songs or even the music companies and get that because a lot of this development is if you're just looking at the music and that's where you're shining the spotlight a lot of this development is happening in the shadows mm -hmm. with some very influential people who are not musicians and that's the story that we try to tell um, well you you, you kind of use you know, we have that 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 idea. This kind of, I think you use the term river, uh, two yeah. different rivers. One river you just described was the idea of that the spirit comes as we sing, or Christ is enthroned as as we praise, or we journey yeah. into God's presence through the mosaic tabernacle, or or utilizing Davidic kind of tabernacle ideas. What's what's the other stream? What's core to their their theology? Well, let me back up sure. and yeah. and then a help differentiate the two rivers. So Sui Hong and I call that first river the gift river because they they see that what's happening is the gift of God in terms of a restoration of a biblical way of worship. So they're the gift river. Yeah. The other river we call the gap river. And the motivation is completely different and it's a different group of people for the most part. These folks are driven by anxiety. Um, <laughs> I hate to say it because this tends to be my own tribe in terms of mainliners yeah. since mid-century. And it's the fear that um, society and culture has continued to develop, but the church in its way of worship has not. And therefore, a gap has been created um, so that average people look at the church's worship and they think it's outdated, it's irrelevant, it's boring, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And people, are, so people are leaving the church. Or, people are leaving yeah, the yeah, church. Yeah. And, and, you, and you're, a lot of this is tied to the cultural upheavals of the 1960s. Um, and, and people were leaving the church and mainline denominations begin to realize this upward progress of numbers and influence was not automatic or insured you know so you start getting some uh, folks by the early 80s who are just crying out the sky is falling the sky is falling there's one i think it was an article in christianity today this prognosticator said you know if things don't change by the early part of the next millennium, i.e. where we are right now, mainline denominations, Lutherans, Episcopalians, Methodists, Presbyterians, will no longer exist. You know, um, and so these folks, they plunge headfirst into the river of creativity in order to make worship more relevant, more interesting, uh, more musically accessible, um, even working on the language of it. So none of this archaic English anymore um, we're not going to be what's another little article I found we're not going to be held captives by the these and thous anymore <laughs> um, you know we're going to speak the way people regularly speak and these folks are motivated also by a biblical theology 
but a completely different set of scriptures. And the key one that kept popping up over and over and over again was 1 Corinthians 9.22, where the Apostle Paul says, I will become all things to all people in order that I might win some. Or as uh, one um, fellow in the late 60s put it, a contemporary songwriter says, you must become winsome in order to win some. <laughs> um, and, and you can just see the, the impulse biblically rooted for creativity and imagination and trying new things. Um, and so that, that sort of um, impulse um, is the gravity that makes the river, the water flow in the river gap. Um, that's, that's so help, helpful in kind of seeing kind of some different um, yeah, biblical theologies of these two different rivers, the Gift River, the Gap River. Um, I think you used the word presence and purpose. One that's, Yeah, presence and purpose, yeah, which tur- was the original title of the book that we proposed to the publisher, but they nixed it. Um, <laughs> do, do these two rivers, or did they have, have different goals? I think you've kind of alluded to that, but what... What would this kind of gift river, presence river, what would the goal of corporate worship be? And on the, on the other side, the gap river, the purpose river, what would the, what would the goal be for, for those services, from, from those planning those services? Well, um, well, I'm going to speak for the early decades because I think there's a confluence. And I now see people who would normally be in the gift river exercising gap sort of thinking. Uh, particularly in trying to push cutting-edge technology in their worship. So uh, through the late 90s, the motivation for the gift people is to get God glorified, to literally build a throne of praise that God can inhabit. And so an extended period of congregational praise as an act of obedience was the motivation. Um, And in fact, one of the early proponents of this, and people who read the book will see this, he connected it with a New Testament passage, Hebrews 13, 15, a sacrifice of praise continually offered. Um, And if he says, if it's a sacrifice, you do it whether or not you feel like it or not. And that's how he would teach people. He would call them forward and he would say, for 10 minutes, we're not going to do anything but vocalize praise of God. And it would be spoken praise and it would be an awkward experience for these congregations trying to learn this. But, um, you know, and some of the stories I heard about this were actually kind of funny. By, you know, minutes seven, eight, nine, they were starting to discern the presence of God. And then this, this guy, he would have his watch out and he'd get to minute 10 and he'd say, okay, everybody quit. <laughs> and he's trying to make a point. It's yeah. about being obedient to the scriptural direction for worship. It's not dependent upon our feelings. Whereas the Gap River folks, they're actually very concerned about what people are experiencing in worship. Is it a positive experience? Is it an attractive experience? Will they want to come back? Is this something that they will commit to? 
Um, and, you know, over time, these two rivers have kind of come together, I think, particularly in the last 20 to 25 years. Um, so that if you're, you know, if you're a 20 year old college student, it would be hard to find one of these rivers in a pure form, one, you know, one, any place, one yeah. way or the other. Um, I can, I can think just again, even in my own experience of Simply as a God for 20, 25 years through, through even seminary and taking some classes at their seminary, how I could see that shift from a a very kind of Pentecostal, let's experience God, build that throne, to let's let's reach the lost, let's update technology to to reach our city. And again, they they it wasn't one for the other, but there was a a more fuller embrace of one of the other rivers. And I know of other other churches, denominational churches, who have who have gone the other way. Like let's let's experience more of the presence of the Spirit through music. Um, yeah, still doing it in relevant modern modern forms, and so I think I think what you you both bring out is right that those rivers may have started in different places, but but they've they've converged in in they've many converged. other places. They've converged, and and the confluence is sourced by the same industry now. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's not like you know in the '60s and '70s the Gift and Gap River people often pulled their songs from different sources there's a lot of gap river songwriting for youth especially in the 60s most of it has fortunately because they're not really strong songs have faded away mm-hmm. they've dried up um not all um uh if anybody's ever sung it only takes a spark um that was my kindergartner's favorite, favorite her favorite song. She's Christian Reform School, and she yeah, that's like singing that's every a week. Gap River song. Yeah, yeah okay. you could tell as she sang that. I have memories right now of her on on the piano, Mrs. Danky. She she passed away about a year ago, I think, and just have great memories of her. You know, bringing that song into her consciousness, into her memory, and then sharing it with you know five-year-olds, and so it was it was really special. But then outside of outside of that context, I've never never sang the song. Yeah, but no, I mean, but we're all everybody pulls the songs from the same basic sources now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we all, and it's not like CCLI has one license for Gift River people and a different license for Gap River people. Or one version of song select, yeah. you know. Pro, they're not two different versions of pro presenter, yeah. um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a single industry sourcing the whole thing now. What and, as, as as we think about kind of these these kind of two streams and this broader movement of contemporary praise and worship? What are some of the unique um, worship contributions of these movements. I know there's, I was talking with Glenn Packiam recently about, you know, how so much of the, the, the last 20 years looking at the contemporary worship movement has been a critique from denominational leaders. So you'd, you'd have maybe, 
um, a denominational liturgical historian looking at contemporary worship with their kind of paradigm. And instead of saying what's what what this movement's contributing, they're critiquing for what's not there. You know, there's no pastoral prayer. So this group doesn't pray. This group doesn't pray a lot. And so I'd I'd try to highlight in those conversations. Yeah, we had a three hour prayer meeting where we prayed for everyone's needs on Wednesday night. Um, and we we don't do that in this in the service. Um, but what in, in your view, as you've kind of studied this this chunk of history as these movements and these rivers have grown, what are some of the contributions that they've made to the broader broader church? Well, uh, let me start with the Gift River people. I think to emphasize the priority of praise is a landmark sort of contribution. Yeah. Um, if I can get on my own little soapbox, I'm tired of going to the churches of my own denomination and looking at the order of worship and the the first hymn will be labeled uh, hymn of praise, opening hymn of praise. And then we'll sing it and it doesn't actually honor God one twit. <laughs> you know, it, standing on the promises is not a act of praise. Yeah. Um, and, and so just to kind of call our bluff and and early in the Grift River people, they were calling the bluff on other Pentecostals too. Yeah. It's like, no, it is absolutely foundational to honor, thank, praise, and adore God. Um, that's utterly central if you look at the New, New Testament and Old Testament, and as a worship historian, Every classic form of Christian worship from the earliest centuries on had the praise of God as the basic kind of building block. And we lose that. We've, um, and there are historical reasons. The rise of the Enlightenment philosophy of the last 200 years has actually kind of eaten away at that. And other reasons too. I don't want to broaden this um, podcast out to really large <laughs> History, but the priority of praise, I think, is the major contribution. And that's the, in some sense, singing songs to God about what God's done, who He is, like that kind of vertical aspect of worship. If you're yes. thinking vertical to God, horizontal to the congregation, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and perhaps the horizontal element, being attentive to the horizontal element, is the contribution of the Gap River. Um, you know, there's a long-standing Christian sensibility in the history of worship, a, a tendency towards the vernacular in the language. Uh, unlike Judaism or unlike Islam, in Christianity, our sacred text itself is not tied up to a single language. And so adaptability to different people groups is a long-standing Christian virtue. Um, and so the Gift River people have reawakened that in us. Um, you know, archaic forms of speaking English in worship 
has been dominant since the 16th century, and particularly since the publication of the King James Version of the Bible in the early 17th century, so much so that people started thinking that's the way you had to talk to God um, until it became a foreign language, essentially. And so the, the Gap River people said, no, 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 we can actually talk to God. We should talk to God in ways that are more normal and expressive. Um, and as, yeah, as I read your book, too, it is kind of updating the language and translating the language, but it's also translating musical forms and kind of architectural forms and the clothes that preachers and worship leaders wear and that you're, you're not just, it's not just a translation project linguistically, but it is translating culture to kind of close that gap to reach everyone, reach the, reach, reach the most possible. It's hard to argue against hospitality. <laughs> you know, if on the one hand, in terms of the vertical dimension, it's hard to argue against the priority of praise. On the other hand, on the horizontal dimension, it's hard to argue against the appropriateness of hospitality. That's great. Hey, there's so many great questions coming in from from students, so I, I want to make sure we take some time and, and get into sure. those. Um, first one's kind of, actually, there's a number of them, kind of on back to your kind of liturgical theology, this cosmic child's play for real. Um, Angela writes this, if these words you're talking about are real, you know, making room for the angelic hosts, how is contemporary worship um, falling short and also living into those realities? So if we're taking kind of Lester Ruth's liturgical theology and, and putting um, contemporary worship, the, the experiences, the songs, maybe both of these streams, where maybe are, are, are we falling short? And also maybe where are we living into the reality that this is a cosmic act, that God is present, that there's the host of angels sure. in, in our midst. Well, you know, I, I actually, thanks, Angela, for the question. I, I think about this a lot, and what I'll share now, I'll just acknowledge as a little bit of my own personal opinion, but hopefully it's an informed opinion. Profess a little bit. You can profess, Professor. I, you know, I'm struck by how much the content of contemporary worship talks about this reality. But bit by bit, it seems to me that we're unable to feel like we can achieve it if we don't have any electricity. And that's another way of saying, I'm wondering if we're over-relying upon lighting and sound systems. Um, and, and part of this is driven by listening to older recordings of contemporary praise and worship from the 70s and 80s. And I'm struck by the power of the congregational voice in these older services. And in fact, the, in early forms of praise and worship uh, that were overwhelmingly Pentecostal, there were extended times of singing in the Spirit, uh, which involved quite a bit of singing in tongues. And, you know, the participants were talking about how heavenly this was. And, and so it didn't occur to them to rely upon whoever was running the soundboard to help create this alternative world. Hmm. The, 
they themselves, the people collectively, participated in creating it. I hope that makes a lick of sense. Do you, do you think? Do you think that those early Pentecostals or those stories you were looking at had a higher level of congregational engagement? Again, I, that's a question you probably haven't looked at, looked at, and would be hard hard too because these are historic case studies. But well, it's hard for me to tell, particularly yeah. when I'm in larger congregations now. And they'll turn down the house light so much I can't see anybody else. And they'll turn up uh, the mic feeds from the vocalists on the platform so much I can't hear anybody else. Yeah. So it's hard for me to ascertain what the actual level of congregational yeah. participation is. My guess is, and this has been a long-standing kind of conversation, I almost wonder if people segregate themselves in the space and it's almost like a concert. The people willing to sing along with every song are going to be the ones who go up front. And then the lingerers, the ones who just kind of want to watch the show, are towards the back of the space. Um, in fact, I was in a megachurch 20 years ago, and literally, they fortunately, they had the house lights up and I could see folks. I was in the middle of the space... Um, I felt like I was on the Canadian-U.S. border, you know, because it was just, it was one world ahead of me, people actively singing, and I turned around, and no one behind me was singing. It was a really strange sort of experience. Um, yeah, and I know there's been some some articles around that that there's a sense that maybe people aren't singing as much because of the the aesthetic because of the rock the loudness some of it's also because possibly because of the education music education and even church music education has shifted a lot in the last 20 or 30 years but there I, are, I, I, I took I took um, yeah I think he wouldn't mind John Whitfleet and I went to a three or four four churches in London at, at kind of the same the same Sunday HTB Hillsong and then um, uh, Spurgeon's, uh, the, the temple, uh, I can't, uh, I can't, oh, I can't um, picture where it is, but tabernacle. Um, and, and each one of those had such a different context, like a different, they were all multicultural, which reflected London. Um, one was kind of charismatic, uh, Anglican. The other was, you know, Pentecostal, neo-Pentecostal, but also doing a lot with the gap and the, you know, kind of both of those confluence. And then one felt like, yeah, they were trying to, relive 100 150 years ago yeah. and but all of them had robust singing and it was interesting you thought maybe the mega church might just be a performance or just be a show but as you looked around the 3000 people everyone you know fully embodied and so i think some of it does depend on the local congregation sure. and the 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 culture of of worship there you know i i think a lot about this um because we pick up clues about what to do and how to participate in worship from our broader culture. And I'm, I've been thinking about, are we in a particular kind of cultural trajectory where we're expected to sing less in public settings? Um, I notice, for instance, when I go to the minor league baseball games here in Durham, North Carolina, and the national anthem is sung, the soloist sings it. 
the crowd doesn't sing it. But if you if you consider what you know Americans did forty or fifty years ago at a baseball game, it was a congregational song, the national anthem. Um, and you know concerts. You know, it almost depends upon the group. I, some concerts you don't sing along. Some other groups you do sing along. I'm a, I'm a, this, this, everybody's going to start to tune out. I'm a big Weird Al Yankovic yeah, fan. I know this about you, yeah. You know, and who goes to Weird Al Yankovic concerts? Lester does. <laughs> and other Weird Al, the entire congregation sings along every song. Because we all know the words of every Weird Al Yankovic song. Um, But I've been at other concerts where you don't, you know, you don't do that. Um, And and this is one of the things I've been worried about in the pandemic, actually, is, um, you know, a year or two of forced participation through a screen, has it inadvertently caused us to pick up on certain cultural patterns and practices where we're now presuming that to participate in worship is a passive sort of um, participation um, on, on the pandemic one of one of one of the things I try to do is gather questions and from different groups from literally fellowship on on Facebook, it's a Facebook group that has lots of yeah different people who are worship leaders, scholars, um, church musicians, pastors. One of them asked for for you, Lester, on on the pandemic. What will worship historians say about the effect of COVID nineteen pandemic on the church and its worship practices? So this is in- encouraging you to be a futurist, maybe not a church historian, but maybe as a church historian. What, what do you think, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, um, people like you, church historians, will look back and say, um, here's some things that, that changed because of COVID? Um, a few things come to mind. Uh, I think it's forced a lot of churches into adoption of technology that otherwise they would have been suspicious of or would have foregone. Um, it, it I, sitting in front of me on my desk, for instance, is an uh, Amazon Echo Dot Alexa, who just flashed her <laughs> light at me right now. I, I had never had any desire to have one of these until I visited a friend who happened to work for Amazon, my best friend from high school, actually. <laughs> Hi, yeah, Alexa. Yeah. She's just. Yeah. Um, and he had them all over his house, and I tried them, and I was like, oh, I kind of like these. And so I think a lot of churches that would never have considered streaming their services, either live or delay-streamed, ever thinking through um, what it means to lead worship in front of a camera, now have done it and have found aspects to it that they like, and they don't want to go back on. Um, my my wife's Anglican church, I went with her to their Easter vigil, their Monday Thursday service, their Good Friday service, their Easter vigil this last Holy Week. They were Facebook streaming all of those services. I can guarantee you they were not streaming their services prior to the pandemic, and I don't ever expect them to go back. 
Um, no longer will we be making these mass-produced cassette tapes of the sermons and distributing them to our shut-ins. Um, we, yeah. Yeah. We're just going to stream. So I think future historians will say there was a big step forward in technologizing, if I can make up a word there. Yeah. I also wonder about long-term attendance trends. Um, and if you look at any of the sociological data, notwithstanding the vitality of your own congregation or your own, you know, smaller tribe, generally Christianity in Europe and in North America is a little bit on the ropes. And the shifting weight is in Asia, Africa, and South America. Um, so I'm wondering if the loss of people because of the pandemic will hit certain congregations and certain groups particularly hard in Europe and um, North America. And so future historians may just say, um, you know, this was like someone with terminal cancer who got mm -hmm. COVID, you know, it mm -hmm. just it didn't make them die. It just accelerated the process. The process, particularly um, in some of those, yeah, the Western context you're describing. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, I, th I think that's about as far as I, as a futurist, am willing to, to go. <laughs> I go. mean, um, well, let's, let's look back then. This is a, bro a broad question from one of our, our students. Um, kind of beyond the obvious, what's the theme that you've seen in your studies of, of worship throughout history? Is there a some consistent themes you know you've I, I've been in classes where you've ran through 2,000 years of, of kind of Christian liturgical history in a few days are there oh, yeah. are there a few themes that um, yeah that you see are there some some connectors within the global historic church um, yeah absolutely some themes that come to mind one is is that oftentimes new things arise organically and then become systematized and standardized over time. Uh, that's another way of saying that today's contemporary worship will be tomorrow's traditional worship. And um, you just see this over and over and over again. And, and then oftentimes there's conflict um, as the now standardized form becomes a much loved form by some but is not loved by others. Uh, another story that I hear, um, that I see in the history of worship is the um, professionalization of worship, if I can call it that. So oftentimes new forms of worship will arise that are very collectively done by the whole people. And the clergy and the um, rehearsed musicians or the facilitators and over time, um, particularly in terms of the music, um, the rehearsed musicians will became, become the main or sole musicians for the music. And so the quality of the music will increase because that's what training and rehearsal will allow, but the people's ability to participate in that well 
um, falls off. Um, if I can jump on another soapbox, for instance, I, I, I worry sometimes with the rise of quote-unquote professional worship leaders of the last 20 years. Too many of the men are tenors and they write songs that are too high for your average churchgoer, Amen. particularly someone Amen. like me who's <laughs> on the border between being a baritone and a bass, I cannot sing many of the newer songs. Um, and so what I end up doing is listening for the um, bass guitar <laughs> and just singing along with the bass guitar. But I have an ear that allows me to pick out the bass guitar and just have something to sing. But... Um, you know, the music's more interesting. The songs are more complex. The music's more dynamic and interesting if you're a rehearsed and trained musician. But it just like happened with the rise of polyphonic music in the late Middle Ages, it became beyond the scope of average people to actually participate in it. Um, so the professionalization, the standardization, uh, another trend that I find is, um, and this will almost strike people as heretical, is a, um, uh, uh, I don't even have a word, a hyper Christifying of worship. I'll call it that, okay? Um, I have a technical term I made up one day, potry superfluidity. It's the superfluousness of God the Father. Uh, and so what I find over time is as Christian people lock in on Jesus Christ as the object of worship, they will often relegate the first person, God the Father, to the sidelines. Um, uh, I saw it in my early Methodist that I was studying. I see it in Pietist. Um, I see it a little bit in the early church, not a lot, a little bit. I see it a lot in contemporary praise and worship. Uh, I'll be listening, for instance, in many modern services about who gets prayed to. Um, and all the prayers are directed to Jesus. All the God references are directed to Jesus. Um, until the preacher stands up to preach, and then, you know, 40 minutes into the service, I'll hear the first prayer directed to God the Father. That is such a historical anomaly. Um, in, in a sense, becoming unitarian, you know, Jesus only, Unitarian, and not Yeah, it's an inadvertent Unitarianism. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. But I like my, you know, I, I want the students to feel like I'm earning my keep off their hard-earned and paid tuition dollars so i make up terms so this potry superfluidity potry uh, meaning father and super, superfluousness of the father um which it makes no sense if you read your new testament um just read carefully matthew through revelation okay the main recipient of worship in the new testament is not jesus christ it's god the father and when God language is used, it's rarely used for Jesus. It's used for the Father. Yeah, and, and I, so, it makes me think of even Philippians 2, where this rich, rich Christological 
passage of Jesus being one, you know, to the point and then coming to earth, point of death and then being raised up, given the name above all names, Yahweh, you know, quoting from the prophets. But then also it's to the glory of the father, like to the glory of God, the father. I had somebody I was I was teaching on the loss of um, the Trinitarian dynamics in um, recent worship lyrics. And somebody pointed out that passage. He says, you know, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. You know, and he thought he had pulled out the um, coup de grace, you know, um, scripturally on me. And I said, but you forgot the last phrase. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and again, it's it's rich. I mean, it's it's drawing from to the glory. You know, the name above all name is the unspoken name, God Yahweh. But also, yeah, there, there isn't this segmenting of Father, Jesus, Spirit here. It is they are one, and and what happened in the Christ event is bringing glory to to the Father. Yes. Um. There's a question from a student, kind of on the sure. rich, richness of. Theology, and she writes, "How do you get the richness of theology and worship without going too far and missing the point?" And maybe I, I hear under this maybe a fear of maybe being too um, critical, maybe coming coming into services. Um, and I find myself doing that now that I've been studying and teaching in worship for almost twenty years. Like I can't come into services and maybe. Um, bring too much analysis or look at everything to the point where I'm, I'm not participating, but yeah. How, how do you, how can you be both a theologian or a theological scholar um, and also continue to be a worshiper? I think it's by bringing the right motivation and end use of the theology. So I asked my collaborator, um, Lim Sui Hong once, I said, Sweet Hung, why am I finding so little kind of um, Trinitarian theology in these songs, in these recent songs? And he said, well, it's probably because many of the songwriters fear that if they become theological, they'll lose their passion for God. Which, as a spiritual descendant of the most prolific hymn writer, in English Protestantism, Charles Wesley, he wrote between six and nine thousand. I it's like that makes no sense to me. Good theology is used not to make us the smarter or to make us more critical. Good theology actually makes us more passionate about God. Um, and so whenever I find myself kind of lapsing into being a armchair liturgical quarterback on Sunday morning or becoming the liturgy police on Sunday morning, you know, I remind myself of two things. One, that's not what the theology is supposed to be doing in me. It is supposed to be helping to awaken new reasons to love God and new grounds to love God. Um, and the theologies to help me be able to discern more deeply the mystery of this all. Um, so, you know, be willing to bring myself into check, call myself into check when I am sliffing over, if I can make a Star Wars reference here, over to the dark side, you know, 
uh, using the theological force for the dark side is like, nope, I'm not going that way. I'm not going the way of Anakin Skywalker. I'm not. I'm going to leave. I'm going to drop this um, <laughs> this cultural reference right now. Um, it's like you know, I'm not going to become the liturgy police. I'm not going to become uh, the armchair quarterback. These people are worshiping uh, the or worshiping well. You know, in every way of worship, this sign of the second coming of Jesus will be incomplete, inaccurate or have some sort of hiccup in it. It's just inevitable. Um, it's, we can't avoid it because it is already and not yet. If I can go back into my original theology. we um, And if there's a not yet aspect, that doesn't mean it's not also already. That's, that's the wonder of it. So um, that was a really convoluted answer. And um, student who asked the question, thank you so very much. <laughs> I hope somehow i answered it yeah i i also hear you say like when we study theology we're studying who we love we're studying yeah we're studying god like it's at his god's church the you know who god who god loves we're also in theology we're studying god's relationship with the world and learning about how the world should function could function doesn't function right why and all of those things i think particularly those of us who are helping lead churches or or serving in in worship um have a responsibility I, it reminds me of anselm's faith seeking understanding that yeah we that there should be a desire in us to grow in knowing who god is and what god thinks about things you know i mean think back when um Jesus was asked, you know, what's the greatest commandment? Uh, and it's love. Love God, obviously. But notice, like the facets of a diamond, there wasn't just a single facet. So it wasn't just love God with your heart, but it was love God with your mind and your soul and your body. Um, so I think cognitive thinking about God can should go, can go hand in hand with affective, emotional, heartfelt contemplation of God. And that both of these ought to be brought to worship, not one or the other, uh, but both and. Um, I, I was reading an article by Jamie Smith on reformed worship, and you know, I, I even used it as part of our call to, to 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 worship a few weeks ago at Dort about being brains on sticks and to encourage us to be embodied in our worship. Um, some of the the songs um, encouraged em, embodied praise and clapping, and so for us to think holistically about who we are is is embodied but also yeah we have a brain that we can learn and grow and push that to the to the further farthest capacity we have the ability to, to empathize with one another and all of those components can be brought into the the worship space and in all of those we can we can grow and learn and be challenged and and be reshaped you know the the theology i think is more like the banks of a river rather than a straitjacket or um, if you've ever been in Los Angeles um, and they have put in artificial concrete banks to the rivers that run straight through. And they're helpful for eliminating flooding, I guess, and directing the river. But you, you really lose the natural beauty of it. So the theology helps guide and shape and give direction to our thought, but it doesn't exhaust 
everything that we should be doing in our interaction with God. Um, you know, as I contemplate the Trinity, for instance, I think it gives us more reasons to love God, not less. Um, you know, Jesus says in the Gospel of John, he says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And so, you know, if I want, if I'm in awe of thinking about just how amazingly abundant Jesus has loved me, well, I need to contemplate the relationship between God the Father and Jesus Christ. That is theology. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, yeah. So good. Just time for just a, a, a couple more, Lester. This one's from a student uh, Look, reminding us kind of, of that conversation we were having about fog machines and concert setup of modern churches and and kind of the architecture um, of, of kind of our modern contemporary worship. We've talked a lot about lights down, you know, or lights on the congregation down, lights on the, the sta stage platform. Um, I think her question is around, you know, comparing that to other periods of church history. Um, yeah, has there been similar complaints like, oh, this <laughs> this seventh century <laughs> church like seems a little too performance based, or it feels like our congregations can't engage with the introduction of of certain new forms of of choir, or liturgical vestments, or different lighting? Has there been kind of a constant culture influence discussion war? I'm, I'm, I'm being a little overloading this question, but really, is, is this a new complaint around kind of performance and um, it's not it's not helping me or, or is it something that yeah within the history of the church we've seen before uh, we've seen it before um, if the current spiritual reality is both already and not yet um, the spirit will always raise up people and movements who will remind us of the not yet aspect um, so, you know, the late patristic period, so say 4th and 5th centuries, you get the rise of monasticism. Where, you know, these monastics are saying, you know, our churches are now full, but we're really missing something essential here. Um, if you look at the Protestant Reformation or aspects of it liturgically in terms of worship relationship, this is one of the standard Protestant critiques of late medieval Catholic worship is it's gloriously beautiful, but we're actually missing the heart of the matter. Um, mm. You know, people are overwhelmed by the beauty of it, but um, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And they're not actually hearing the gospel in worship anymore. You know, the music's glorious and the spaces are overwhelming and people still make pilgrimages to these um, medieval cathedrals in Europe. In fact, there's a fake one right next to my office building here on the Duke campus, um, intentionally built to replicate a, Euro a European cathedral. But yeah, it's not a new it's not a new complaint. And so when I'm saying you know yes, but to fog machines and sound systems, I'm not saying that those things are inherently bad. I'm just saying. Um, is 
easy to become over-reliant upon them and to miss that which is the actual key thing, the heart of the matter. Um, you know, working on the history, uh, one of the early vineyard worship leaders was a guy named Eddie Espinoza. Uh, if anybody's ever sung Change My Heart, O God, that's Eddie Espinoza's song, probably his best known song. And already by the late 80s, he, he wrote an article that came out in a magazine called The Psalmist. And I may I quote the, his passage in the book. And he says, I'm worried that we're beginning to worship worship and that we're forgetting to worship God. Um, and these were in pre-fog machine days. But, you know, if you know anything about the vineyard, particularly early vineyard, they were making huge steps forward in the quality of the songwriting and the music. And it, it could be just, you could be mesmerized by the guitar lick. Um, and, and Eddie's saying, you know, um, you know, the anointing's not on the chord progression by itself. Ultimately, this is about people, the person of God relating to human people. Yeah, yeah it's beautiful. Well, Lester, we're, we're out of time, but one more, one more question as we wrap up. What, what would you hope current and future leaders of worship um, take away from your research on the history of contemporary praise and worship? It's, it's a book written for the academy, but professors like Angela and I are using it in classroom for those who are particularly being trained as leaders of worship. What would your, your desire be for them to to, yeah, to take take with them as they encounter your your research and writing. I, on a broad basis, I think it would be for people to appreciate eggs that are not already in their basket. Sorry about that. Um, We're coming off words East, came out. Easter. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's Easter tide. I can speak in ways like this. I'm always struck by the wisdom that other Christians have for us. So whatever your strengths are, this is a better way of saying it, whatever your strengths are and legitimately are, realize that they're not the only strengths. So I hope what people would pull away from the book is a curiosity about looking at other Christians when they worship and to contemplate what is it that they might have as a strength that we don't. Um, a, a single case, I mean, yeah. the Gap River people, and these this is my own tribe, one of the things that strikes me is they don't ever really ever ask the question fundamentally what is worship and so you get a lot of screwy services among some of the gap river people that are just so off base they're full of people because they're great fun and they're and, they, and there's a drawing for a motorcycle at the end of it you know <laughs> I, I think i've actually seen that um but it's not the worship of god and um so you might have the strength of being attractive, but you don't have the strength of what it actually means to worship God. And so 
the the humility to dwell with other Christians and see what they might be doing well or better than you. That's what I hope people pull away from the book and from my work generally. Beautiful, Lester. Well, it's been a treat to have you. A huge thanks to you for your time, but also your yeah years of, of study to, to pull off this uh, new work along with Sui Hong. And yeah, our prayer is that it impacts the, f- the future of, of the church as we study the past too. And thanks to Angela and her class for being involved today and all the great questions. And yeah. Sorry we couldn't get to them all. <laughs> it's time for another podcast then. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. And uh, yeah, I, um, I invite people to look up my email on the Duke website and feel free to email me. Yeah. I'm slow as molasses, but I'll eventually get back to you. I appreciate this opportunity. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Thanks for listening today, and a special thanks to the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship for their support of this podcast.